and welcome to the Sound of History podcast, a very professional and on-time podcast about music history. I like how you went, hello. I do that every time. <laughs> you go, hello, with an yeah. Instead of an O, you go, ooh. Yeah, it's my thing. Hello. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, reminds me of like a neighbor in a sitcom. So, I don't know. I don't think that they would like that neighbor. Maybe they don't have to like the neighbor. Anyway. I like you. <laughs> this is a music history podcast where I am teaching Mika all about music history. The whole story. And I try and eat sprees in a way that don't pick up on the mic. We'll see the level of success of that. And we're in the 80s right now, which is exciting. Good music happened in the 80s. You sound sarcastic. No, I'm not. I'm reading a whole book right now about 80s music, basically. 80s. It is exciting. That's what you sounded like. <laughs> Fair. I have no hope that you know what the last I'm, thing I we talked no about was. Not a it's, damn clue. It's been months, it feels like, since we've done this. Sorry about that. But check out our YouTube channel where I'm still putting out content. So you can still see stuff there if you're missing out on us. He just gave up on me being available and or Kinda. mentally <laughs> in a space to participate. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can follow us on Twitter. We don't really do anything, but twitter.com slash history underscore. Maybe instead of telling the people that we don't do anything, we should do something. And by we, I mean you, because I'm not going to. I mean, I already did. I did the whole like Rolling Stone 100 Greatest Albums thing, but I don't know. I just don't care enough about social media to like want to do anything on there. This is true. So I reserve my time for like making these episodes and doing YouTube videos and stuff takes a lot of time to post on social media it does it's almost like that's a job yeah it's almost like it's half of my real job okay mika is the host now you've had a, a long time a lot of things I have nothing to say we went on a whole big trip two trips we've i don't know I, we i think we've not recorded this since we saw billy joel there's plenty to talk about Mika is the host now. Um, we did see Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks, and the entire time that Stevie was performing, my jaw was literally hanging open, catching flies. It did not close until her set was done, and I had to do, like, jaw exercises. <laughs> I'm not joking. I just sat there for, like, the whole time in between, trying to, like, discreetly go, <laughs> Nice. That's all I have to say. Okay. Billy was good too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we also saw All Time Low right before that. Did you have any thoughts that was on fun. them? Good thoughts. Shout out to whoever put their stage together. Yeah, it was, it was really cool because it was like an acoustic set or whatever. So they like just put like a bunch of different lamps and plants just scattered throughout the stage. It looked very theatrical, but in a good way. And I liked it very much. Yeah, it's cool. It's like the vibe of being in a coffee house because it was just like lighting and plants. That's all <laughs> we all know that's all coffee shops are. Right. Just ambiance. Yeah. Any albums you've been listening to lately that you're liking or no. any songs or artists? No. No. 
No. Just not listening to any music? Well, I'm listening to music, but I'm not paying attention. I'm trying to, like, make myself wake up in the morning by having a good morning playlist for when I'm, like, in a good mood, and then just a morning playlist for when it's not good. Want to take any guesses on the... Well, Mika no longer the host now. We got No longer the host now. Eat spree. <laughs> Do you want to take any guesses on what we've been talking about? We're in the 80s. We talked about a genre. Hair metal bands. No, that was before. It was a good guess, though. That's all I remember. We did hair metal, and then we did Motley Crue, and then we did one more. It was alternative rock. Oh, yeah. About kind of like the more indie underground rock scene that was happening. Yeah, because it's just like a huge, un- like hard to define genre. Essentially, yeah. It's the spawn of punk, essentially, and the DIY attitude of punk. The spawn of punk makes it seem like punk had a devil child with like a witch. (laughs) I mean, kind of. And it's the spawn of punk. That's (laughs) what it sounds like. Kind of. Which is not alternative rock. It's some alter. It's not the alternative rock we've talked about. I guess some of it is spawn worthy. Some of it is just normal child in wedlock worthy. Yeah, I mean, what? Because like the book I'm reading now is all about like the indie underground rock scene of the 80s like the early to mid 80s but it focuses more on like hardcore punk which was still alternative rock but like not really (laughs) it's different than what we've been talking about but anyway it's alternative rock but with like pink highlights sure purple highlights no more like shaved heads and then they just paint part of their head pink (laughs) or blue maybe okay so there was any number of alternative rock bands that I could have chosen to focus on with this episode, even a couple that we talked about last episode, like Husker Du. That was when we talked about them. They were very important. I don't like them, right? I think you like them more. They're ones who kind of introduced a little bit of melody into like mm. punk stuff. I do like melody. They, they still leaned into that like hardcore, noisy style, but they had some melody going on. I don't remember the other ones we talked about, but we might have mentioned like Minor Threat, which was like a hardcore punk band from DC. Good name. We, I think we talked about Jane's Addiction from. Yes, we did. LA or somewhere in California and Lollapalooza and how that all got started. But uh, honestly, this band that we're talking about, I just kind of wanted to learn more about because I've heard a ton about them, never really listened to them all that much, didn't know too much about them. So. I decided to talk about R.E.M. They were around at the start of the scene, and they were massively popular, so they'd be pretty interesting to look at. It is just sleep. Okay. Yeah, it's perfect for you. This is your episode. I do like to sleep. Do you know anything about the band R.E.M., not the sleep cycle? I know that there are periods in between the R and the E and the M. (laughs) Yes. That's what I know. Do you know anything about their music? No. Think you know any of their songs? Probably. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, as is usual with band episodes, we'll be going back in time, so make sure you have your your sound effect ready. Does REM stand for something? Is it an acronym? We it is really edgy mansplainers. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's not what it stands for, but <laughs> but accurate maybe. Uh, roasted. I don't know if mansplainer just eggplant, men probably would have been good. Roasted eggplant. Mm, mummies. <laughs> You're getting a little bit farther off. 
you have your your back in time sound effects ready? Yeah. Okay. Peter Lawrence Buck was born in 1956 in Berkeley, California. Eventually, after bouncing around a few places, the Buck family settled in Atlanta. Dang. That's a jump. Yeah. I mean, I think they were in the Midwest for a little bit before coming down to Atlanta. But anyway, they ended up in Atlanta. Peter said that the Beatles inspired him to start playing music. No shit. (laughs) He said, quote, I was around six when I saw them on TV for the first time. At that moment, I realized that was what I wanted to do with my life. And then he was 13 or 14 when he got his first guitar, and he said his first gig was playing the Batman theme song, probably (laughs) for like a birthday party or something. That's adorable. (laughs) Honestly, props. Like, for a 13-year-old to still be like, yes, I am doing the thing Mm -hmm. I wanted to do as a six-year-old. I wanted to be like a travel agent when I was six. You knew that was a thing when you were six? Yeah, because of, because of, oh gosh, who was it with like the worm and the top hat? He's like a little intro, he's the only worm that I like. Richard Scary. Oh, you've told me about that, but yeah. I have no idea what that is. I don't know what it was, but they, they talked about jobs. Someone was a travel <laughs> agent. Okay. I wanted to be a working man. Okay. <laughs> that was my term for a construction worker, I think. Cute. Because <laughs> my neighbor was a working man, so I wanted to be like him. That's adorable. Peter was a pretty good student, and he graduated with honors in 1975 before going to Emory University for a bit. Eventually, he would drop out, and he moved to Athens, Georgia, and enrolled in the University of Georgia. While in school, Peter got a job at Wuxtry Records, an independent record store in Athens. And that store is actually still in operation. Shut up. No way. (laughs) The store was founded by two guys who relocated from Chicago with the intent of opening a record store in a college town. They did it. Yep. They really didn't know how to run a business, but they loved music. They initially wanted to open their store in West Virginia, but passed through Athens and decided that it was a good enough place and they stayed. That sounds... That sounds about right (laughs) for people with like a very loose business plan they're like oh good enough yeah right it was immediately successful and became something of a staple of the music scene there which actually was like a pretty impressive music scene other than peter a member of the b-52s kate pearson was also one of the first employees that's cool and the b-52s did the song love shack i didn't know that but i did know b-52 okay that's good also, Brian Burton worked there in the 90s, who is better known as Danger Mouse. Is he known as Danger Mouse? Yes. I've never heard of Danger Mouse. He is not known by he, me. He's like an EDM guy. Oh. Yeah. That's probably mm. why I don't know him. But he's one of the bigger... I think he wore like a head of a mouse. I think that was his thing. Like an animatronic head thing. Oh, okay. Like helmet. helmet was the word I was looking for. Helmet and animatronic head, very <laughs> different. Well, I mean, like it covered his whole face. So like no one knew who he was, I think. Maybe I'm thinking of a different guy, but uh, I think it's him. It was at that store where Peter Buck, who was a manager at that time, met Michael Stipe. John Michael, oh, sorry, back in time. John Michael Stipe was born in 1960 in, I should know how to say this town name, but I don't. Decatur, Georgia? Decatur? 
What? I don't know. It's Georgia. <laughs> just like say it as Southern as you can and you're probably going to be right. Like it's Decatur. like. Decatur. Yeah. It's like Italian where you like don't want to be mean, but like the more Italian you right. say it, the more likely <laughs> it is to be correct. Right. Like Georgia, just like get rid of whole letters. like <laughs> Smash things together. Smash it together. Slur it a little bit. Exactly. His dad was in the army. So like most military families, he moved around quite a lot. He lived in many places like West Germany, Texas, Alabama, but he graduated school in Illinois. His dad was a helicopter pilot in Korea and Vietnam, and he and his sister would watch the news coverage of those wars trying to catch a glimpse of their father. That's awful. Yeah. Michael Stipe is still close with his family and said about his dad, quote, I couldn't relate to my father's experiences or the troops in Iraq who'd been at war until 9-11. My father was a career army man, having been to Vietnam twice and Korea once. I'm very proud of him for that. How did he relate because of 9-11? I don't know, maybe just the sense of danger. Okay. <laughs> was like, did he the, help? Did, I, I didn't, he may have <laughs> been around New York at the time. I don't know, but may, probably just like the sense of like trauma and danger and fear that soldiers must constantly live in. <laughs> he felt that for a little bit, I guess. I don't know. When he was 14, he was introduced to punk music through a magazine called Cream. A magazine that was created by Lisa Robinson, who was super involved in the CBGB scene happening in New York. Do you remember CBGB? Kinda. Okay. It was the big club where like the Ramones, the Talking Heads, and Blondie all got their start. Yeah. Stood for country, bluegrass, and blues. Every single time I don't see it, I see it as like, like Tallahassee. Like CBGB. C-E-E-B. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like I don't. It's an acronym. Though. I don't know whether or not it's an acronym. It's just CBGB, but it's two <laughs> words. CB is one word. GB is another word. Okay. <laughs> I get that. But yeah, listen to our punk episode if you want to learn more about CBGB. I'm also probably going to do a YouTube video just about CBGBs and what happened to it and where it went. Is so. that where you want to run by when yes. you're in New York City? Cool. Yeah, that one in Max's Kansas City. So wait, Kansas City is is not in New York City. But Max's Kansas City is. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's where Debbie Harry worked as a waitress before Blondie got popular. My esthetician was playing her. It was good. Oh, just <laughs> I thought you meant like in a play or no. something. <laughs> just the music in her <laughs> shop. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, but yeah, what? Subscribe to her YouTube channel if you want to learn more about CBGBs because I'll probably do a video about it pretty soon. Um. Anyway, back to Michael Stipe. He said that he heard Patti Smith's debut album and never looked back. He came to idolize Patti Smith and her music growing up. His first time performing on stage came in a 1977 Battle of the Bands at his high school. A friend asked him to sing, and Michael said he didn't sing, but the friend convinced him to do it anyway. So he sang a cover of Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. This sounds like the plot of a Disney movie. <laughs> Like yeah. decom, here we go, battle of the bands. <laughs> I've never sang. You should do it anyway. Turns out to be awesome. Like I think that might be Lemonade Mouth. I was just gonna say, was well, <laughs> there some sort of like band thing with a lemon in it? <laughs> I've never watched it, so I don't know. <laughs> Michael also decided to enroll in the University of Georgia and was a frequent customer at Wuxtree Records, where he met Peter Buck. They quickly bonded over a shared love of punk music. Michael said, it turns out that I was buying all the records that Peter was saving for himself. That's funny. So the two got along and started hanging out. Their mutual friend, Kathleen O'Brien, 
introduced them to two other musicians in the fall of 1979. It's a little confusing here because now there's two mics. Oh, no. We have Michael Stipe, who is the singer guy. And then we have Mike Mills and Bill Barry. Very alliteration in their names. Oh, no. We have Michael, Mike, and Billiam. I'm going to, I think I call him Michael. The singer is Michael. And then I call the other guy Mike. I think that's how I differentiate it in the script. Who came first? Like born first? No. In our script? Yeah. Michael. No, the other one. Peter Buck. Peter. Yes. Peter, Michael, Mike, and Billiam. Mike was drunk when they met, which made Michael not like him all that much. That's fair. But he did like Bill's monobrow, and he said that was the tipping point that influenced his decision to work with the two. Stop it. <laughs> How old are they? 17, 16? No, they're in college. Oh, they're that's in the University right. of Georgia at this point. Okay, back in time. Beep! Mike Edward Mills was also born in Orange County, California in 1958, and his dad was also in the military he was a marine who was stationed in california is he mike or is he michael this is mike but like his name is michael but this is mike sometimes people's names are just mike fair no his name is michael edward mills but i thought that would confuse you so i called him mike already is (laughs) so when mike was just a baby his family relocated to macon georgia and Uh, would stay there as mike grew up i have a friend from there Mike's dad was a singer who actually performed on the Ed Sullivan show and sang in the Naval Aviation Choir. So I I thought that he was in the Marines. The Marines are a part of the Navy. Really? Yeah. They might be their own branch now, but they're like closely associated. Oh. It's like marine biology, Marines. It's water. What? It's aquatic based. Navy is aquatic based. Yeah. So the Marines are aquatic based too. They're like associated somehow. What is different between the Marines and the Navy? I don't know. I, th- I th- Honestly, I think they started out similar and maybe now they're a different branch. Because, like, I thought Marines were just, like... Super Navy. Right. Like, that is kind of what like they're... soldiers, except a little bit. Like, they're more advanced, more trained, whatever. They but do then that's, throw that out in their, then, like, ads and stuff. That's Navy SEALs. So, oh, right. Like, like I don't... And then, like, Green Berets are the Army's Navy SEALs. So, like, are Marines Air Force? I don't know. I have no idea. No, No, that's that's completely different. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I'm not a military guy. I have no idea. Help. (laughs) Um, Yeah, tweet us. Let us know what the military is. You should just call. (laughs) Let us know what the military is. You should just ask your brother. Yeah, he won't know. (laughs) Anyway, Mike grew up keenly aware of harmonies and melodies. As a kid, he was able to pick up instruments really quickly. He first started to play the piano, probably because his dad was a piano teacher, and he joined the school's marching band. Probably not as a pianist, because they don't think they march with a piano. Do they have have one off to the side? Maybe. I don't know. I can't remember. Around the age of 15, he taught himself to play the guitar and the bass. Mike started to play in a few different bands around Macon and met Bill Berry. And at the start, the two really didn't get along. Probably was it because Mike was drunk? Well, actually, it's because Mike was very clean cut. Oh. Which you'd expect from a Marine kid. And he was a straight A student. Until the tipping point. Yeah. Bill, on the other hand, was a long-haired stoner. 
so they didn't really have anything in common and they avoided each other. But then they both showed up to audition for the same band. Bill had already set up his drum kit, so it would have been awkward to just bail on the rehearsal after that. So they buried the hatchet and ended up working in several different bands together. By the time Mike started to join those local Macon bands, he was already a really accomplished bassist. Sounds like he's just kind of like... Good at whatever he touches. Yeah, at least musically. Yeah. He's One of them. Very talented. All right, now we're talking about Billiam. Billiam. We're going back in time. Billiam, 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 Billiam. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. William Thomas Berry was born in 1958 in Minnesota. It's really interesting that R.E.M. is so known as a Georgia band and none of them were born in Georgia. Like that is just interesting to me. I did not know they were a Georgia band. Yeah, they're very associated with like the Athens scene in Georgia in general. Hmm. Uh, Bill was the fifth child. His family bounced around a couple of times, moving to a suburb of Milwaukee and into Ohio, but they made their final move to Macon in 1972, just in time for Bill to start high school there and meet Mike. Mike. The duo tried to make things work around Macon, getting odd jobs to facilitate their music career, but eventually moved to Athens to attend UGA, where they met Kathleen, who introduced them to Michael and Peter. You tracking? Yeah, but earlier you said Kathleen's name was super weird. Yeah, I don't... That might have been a typo. <laughs> or it was like Kathleen up at, earlier in the script. Carolyn and, or Kathleen? <laughs> no, it was Kathleen earlier in the script. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm saying like... Oh. Did you combine the two? No, I think I might have just put the E in the wrong place. Because it was up earlier. It was K-A-T-H-E-L-L-E-N. Kathleen. Kathleen. But then down here, it's just Kathleen. So maybe one got autocorrected and it is Kathleen. I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll figure it out and tweet about it. Okay. In 1980, they met Kathy. <laughs> uh, and then she introduced them to Michael Stipe and Peter Buck. In 1980, Kathy was planning a birthday party at an abandoned church in Athens. Hell yeah. She already booked a headliner band to play, but she needed an opener. Oh, who is this Miss Moneybags <laughs> venue <laughs> headlining I mean, opening it's a, it's a birthday party? Well, I doubt she paid them. <laughs> really? <laughs> They're not even a band yet. They're just like a loose assortment of musicians. She must have. I mean, if you book a gig, you get paid. It doesn't matter if you're like a, a standing band or not. I guess. I don't know. I like all I'm saying is she is Miss Moneybags. I watched with the rich daddy. I watched some like interviews with them where they were talking about this time and they were basically saying that like the scene was pretty small in terms of like who liked what music so it's just kind of like you found an abandoned place and started playing and then everyone just showed up and watched and then left that's like it adorable was oh my gosh kind of like this amorphous blob of punk kids who would just like move around <laughs> to like these abandoned places fun uh Good so venues kathy asked if this new group of musicians wanted to open they eagerly said yes, despite the fact that they'd only rehearsed together a handful of times and didn't have a name. Peter and Michael had already written a couple of songs together, and the four of them churned out a few more. They rehearsed those and some covers in the back of the church for a few months. All for a birthday party. Damn. Yeah, they're getting into it. And Kathy invited them to play. Oh, after Kathy invited them to play, they picked up the pace and came up with a set a few weeks before the party. Some of the band members said they played the gig with no name, but others say they played as Twisted Kites. After rejecting wonderful names like Cans of Piss. 
Twisted Kites is better. <laughs> About 300 people showed up in Twisted Kites. Oh my God, how many people does this girl <laughs> know? Is she like prom queen? What's happening? <laughs> Maybe of the punk scene. <laughs> this is probably just like... How are there even that many punk kids? I, yeah, I don't know. In <laughs> Athens, Georgia too. But I mean, it's a college town and punk is probably like the hip thing at the time so but twisted kites played about 20 songs the crowd was super drunk so very enthusiastic their songs like a lot of punk were fast brash and kind of silly here is an early live version of one of their songs called body count it's not from that party because i doubt there's any footage from that right but it's like, i don't know though i mean kathy she, <laughs> she might have set up a live film. screen you know but this will give you kind of like a sense of what that might have been like at that party like them what how do you know what they sound like i just do okay the band said at this time they were basically sharing everything they lived together on and off they shared records clothes basically anything they could apparently there weren't many clubs in athens georgia that played the kind of punk and new wave stuff that they were into so they ended up playing a lot of parties hosted by their friends it was basically just a little underground music community that was kind of flourishing in athens but they were also kind of one of the more tame-sounding bands in the area. A lot of the art school students were starting bands that were far more experimental, so they sounded pretty standard, mostly because they only really played covers. Someone from the Atlanta music scene at the time said, quote, I recognized early that they were like the digestible by frat boys version of the Athens sound. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. so they were just a little bit more normal than all the weird RD stuff. I mean, like, on one hand... It's nice to be able to like be listenable. Yeah. On the other hand, that is such <laughs> a like mean such thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> They're not pushing any new ground. They're not doing anything cool. The band eventually settled on the name REM, which was taken at random out of the dictionary. So it's literally REM. Probably. Most people associate it with that state of deep sleep, deep sleep, rapid eye movement. But when the sleep scientist who coined that term called the band, they said that they were not named after rapid eye movement. Is that because it was like they weren't allowed to use it? I doubt it. Can Why you, did he call them? Can you copyright scien a definition? scientific I terms? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they just thought it wasn't cool to be named after that. Maybe, maybe they just saw like rim as like a part of a like a prefix to a word in the dictionary and they were like yeah rem went with the, i don't know i don't know prefix. what happened yeah like remember rem starts that word there's other words like that i don't know anyway they never 
they never said where it actually came from. That's just, they said it wasn't rapid eye movement. So we don't know. Hmm. The newly christened, christened band eventually dropped out of school to focus on music. They found a manager who was a music store clerk who was so impressed by a show they did in North Carolina that he moved to Athens to be able to manage them. They then started a tour across the southern U.S. and gained a bit of a following, especially in Athens. More and more people were coming to the shows, but there really wasn't an established way for more indie artists to tour reliably. They were driving around in a little blue van and living on a food allowance of $2 a day. Oof. In 1981, they released their first single, Radio Free Europe, and it immediately brought them national attention. New York, wow. New York Times listed it as one of the top 10 singles of the year. That's impressive. Yeah, it's wild. Just right up there. It was recorded at a studio in North Carolina and originally used as a part of a demo tape for clubs and magazines, but then released as a single on a small label called Hippotone. That label was started by a law student and only released eight records before <laughs> it folded. They recorded it after a show where they opened for the police and wanted to capitalize a bit on that exposure, which is smart. Yeah. They ended up not really liking the way the recording sounded. Here is Radio Free Europe. So, like, did they redo it or? They might have re-released it later in their career, but it was popular for them, so can't really dislike it that much. Later that year, the band went back to that studio in North Carolina to record five more songs for an EP. By this point, they were getting some major attention. They were the talk of the New York City underground. They were approached by RCA Records, which was one of the largest labels in the country. But they turned down RCA and signed with an indie label called IRS Records on a five-album deal. Which is kind of crazy to turn down one of the biggest. Like, that's a bold move. Yeah, and it's also a really big deal coming from, like, an indie record label yeah five albums holy cow irs was owned by miles copeland who had deep ties to the punk and new wave scene he had worked as an agent producer magazine publisher and label owner his brother ian was the drummer of the police that makes sense yeah (laughs) which is like as far as indie labels go at that time that's a super well-connected one like a lot were just like yeah like the guys in Black Flag were like, we need something to release our mm-hmm. songs that we made, so we'll just make a record label. <laughs> that ended up being like one of the more popular indie labels, and they had no idea what they were doing. That's funny. <laughs> they were just throwing things together. So this one feels like it has a little bit more good leadership behind it. IRS sponsored a monthly show on MTV, which focused on bands that were signed to the label. 
their albums were distributed by A and M. So it's got it's got some good background. Wow. Yeah. Like wow. <laughs> the label eventually folded in nineteen ninety six before being revived in two thousand eleven by EMI. But then it shut down again in twenty fifteen. So it is no longer in existence. IRS released the EP and it introduced the world to REM's strange sound. It sold over 20,000 copies, more than anyone thought it would. But then they released their first full-length album in 1983 that really threw them into the spotlight. The band refused to incorporate things that were popular at the time, like guitar solos and synthesizers, hoping the result would be a more timeless sound. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. The album, called Murmur, reached number 36 on the charts and featured a remade version of Radio Free Europe as the first single. It was also a huge critical success. However, it only sold at 200,000 copies, which was less than what IRS expected. Which is huge for an indie label. 200,000 is insane. Like a lot of these other indie labels, their top bands were getting like 6,000. Like It's wow. crazy. Like I think Husker Du was the most popular one on SST, which was Black Flag's label. And they struggled to get like 5,000 records pressed and sold. Wow. It's wild. In 1983, they made their national TV debut on David Letterman, playing a song that would be the single of their second album, Reckoning, which was released in 1984. Reckoning ended up doing really well in the States. It hit number 27 and received great reviews. It sold far better than most college rock band albums, and they were called one of the most exciting bands at that time. But but distribution issues really hampered them overseas, and they didn't do great in England. By the time they hit the road for, to tour for that album, they were really well-known in the underground scene. They helped a lot of college radio stations whenever they could and toured relentlessly. That's fun. So their name was kind of just out there in all of the little mm-hmm. underground scenes. Bands started to imitate R.E.M.'s sound, and R.E.M. would throw all of the support they could at these other bands, letting newer bands open for them when they played their towns and mentioning them in countless interviews. They sound really yeah. nice. They're just all about that underground scene, trying to bring people up with them. I love that. In 1985, they released their third album, which was a change in direction for them. It used a different producer than their first two and ended up being a bit darker than either of their first albums. They recorded it in England, and the band hated their time there. Wow. They went in winter, so they complained about the cold weather and the poor food. That's your fault. Yeah, <laughs> like you should kind of expect that. There was a gloominess around everything that apparently led the band to the brink of breaking up. Welcome to, like, that's England. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's gloomy. It's gloomy and cold in winter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the food's not the best. Like, that's just, <laughs> what did you expect? Oh, my goodness. That edginess is, you can hear that in the album, too. Michael said that in the album, he wanted to capture, quote, the whole idea of the old men sitting around the fire, passing on legends and fables to the grandchildren. That sounds cool. That sounds like a great concept. Yeah. Michael, who was always a bit eccentric, entered his most eccentric phase yet. He dyed his hair bleach blonde, put on a bunch of weight, and started wearing tons of layers of clothes. Let's go. I mean, it was winter in England. (laughs) This album ended up being their most successful one up to that point. They were continuing their upward climb, which is like, it's rare that every album is just more Mm -hmm. successful as you move up. Mm -hmm. Normally there's dips and dives. 
Their next album continued that trend. It was their most successful album to that point since Michael focused on accentuating his vocals and it ended up selling better than their first three. Peter Buck said about that album, quote, Michael is getting better at what he's doing and he's getting more confident at it. And I think that shows up in the projection of his voice. End quote. Here is a song from that album called Fall On Me. This is giving. Like, it's making about that much sense. <laughs> I was getting, like, college poetry class. Uh, yeah, that too. Or even high school poetry class. At least that sentence made sense. <laughs> Alright, that's Fall On Me. But you can tell the production's getting better. His voice is standing yeah. out more. College and underground radio continued to be the primary way that their music got out into the public. But they were starting to get a bit of airplay on rock radio stations. They're turning a little bit more mainstream. Oh no! The pop music stations still weren't paying attention, though. But that started to change with their fifth album, called Document, in 1987. Document was produced by, again, a new producer, who would end up producing their next five albums after it. Golly. And features some deeply political lyrics. It set them up to break through to the mainstream, especially because one of the songs became a top 20 hit. It's called The One I Love, and Michael intended it as a kind of anti-love song. He said about it, quote, it's very clear that it's about using people over and over again, quote, end Ooh. quote. Here is the one I love. Let's hope the lyrics are a little bit better. This one goes out to. This one goes out to the one I've left behind. A simple prop to occupy my time. This one goes out to the one I love. Fire! Alright, that's the one I love. It's not the song I love. That was the name of the song. It's the one I love. Am I the one you love? Yes. Yay! After that album, the band kind of grew up. They left their indie label and signed with Warner Brothers in 1988, which led to some of their underground fans calling them sellouts. They left because IRS had terrible overseas distribution. Yeah, I would leave too. That makes sense. 
Warner actually offered them less money than other labels, somewhere between 6 and $12 million, but they chose Warner because the label offered them total creative freedom. They wanted to be mainstream on their own terms and with their own style, which I can respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that point, when you're at 6 and $12 million, it's like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> A couple extra million, like, go with one that offers you freedom. I think Warner was also kind of known as that label that would take stabs on more of the underground scene. I think they're the ones that also signed Husker Du back in the day. So I might have got that wrong, but that's what I remember. Their first Warner album continued their just upward trend. It became double platinum, and they graduated to playing stadiums in the U.S. But the tour for that album was exhausting, and they ended up taking an extended break for the first time in 1989. Good for them. Yeah, they've been going for almost 10 years of just relentless touring and Good recording. Good for them. Take your break, boys. <clears throat> their next album, after their break, pushed them into international stardom, largely on the back of their breakout single, Losing My Religion. It hit number four in the U.S., the band's highest charting song, and number 19 in the U.K., Peter Buck wrote the main riff of the song after he bought a mandolin and tried to learn how to play it. He recorded himself playing around with it, and part of that recording became the start of Losing My Religion. That's fun. He said, quote, When I listened back to it the next day, there was a bunch of stuff that was really just me learning how to play mandolin, and then there's what became Losing My Religion, and then a whole bunch more of me learning to play the mandolin. <laughs> End quote. Michael has repeatedly said that the lyrics are not about religion. Losing my religion was a common phrase in the South for getting angry or losing your temper. Okay. He said it's about unrequited love. He compared it to Every Breath You Take by the police and said, quote, it's just a classic obsession pop song. I've always felt the best kinds of songs are the ones where anybody can listen to it, put themselves in it, and say, yeah, that's me, end oh, quote. Okay. Here is Losing My Religion. Gotta listen for the mandolin. The mandolin riff. I, I heard it. How have you heard about the commercial riff? like I know it but it doesn't, like it's not like iconic riff to me no, the riff is iconic like the chorus is to me what is happening in, in these <laughs> music videos they're trying to be artsy It's funny because, like, they... That's losing my religion. You say, like, they had this idea and they wanted it to sound like this, and I'm like, yeah, solid. But, like, then I look at that, I'm just like, huh? <laughs> what are you I mean, doing? this is also, like, a lot of their influence was that kind of, like, avant-garde art style. Yeah. Of, like, Andy Warhol and that type of stuff. So they just kind of go with that and make it weird. <laughs> Doesn't seem to connect, but, like, okay. Yeah. After that song, the band's popularity exploded. They were nominated for seven Grammys in 1992, the most of any artist, and won three of them. 
1992, they released Automatic for the People, which is a super stripped-back album that is somber and details with themes of loss and mourning, which was inspired by the members turning 30. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Peter and Mike Mills think it's their best album, and it's on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Albums list. It's the one that I know that album title name yeah i know that one it's very like acoustic here is the song that i'm sure you know from that album called everybody hurts all of the comments on all of these rem songs have been like i lost my wife (laughs) i lost my husband i love this song like Every single one. Like, what? (laughs) I also can't believe they did all this before 30. Yeah. Like, everything we've talked about. It's before 30. It's pretty wild. You know the song, right? Yeah. It's kind of hard to take it seriously because it's just a meme. So just so it's just time to sing along. Yeah, the song's dramatic. Alright, that's everybody hurts. Everyone is struggling and then this kid is just like dad stop singing. <laughs> dad stop singing. That could be a struggle. <laughs> this is awful. This is the worst moment of my life. Stop singing. <laughs> like that's what one of the one of the characters in the music video i guess everyone's like thinking all this stuff that's like so heavy and then this kid is just like dad stop singing (laughs) so then next they released a harder rock album and then they started out on their first tour in six years and it did not go great two months into the tour bill barry collapsed on stage oh he had suffered a brain aneurysm oh god the, the immediate surgery went well, and he recovered within a month. So they went back out. Oh, uh, no. Only for Mike Mills to have to undergo surgery for an intestinal tumor. Uh, uh. And then a month after that, Michael had to have emergency surgery for a hernia. What on <laughs> earth? Yeah, it's wild. Just bad string of events there. Like, take the hint. Maybe just don't <laughs> finish the <Nope>. tour. <laughs> Despite all of that, the tour was a massive success. What? And they even ended up recording most of what they needed for a new album along the way. He's just the work they have got, of they this They are band. too stressed. They're <laughs> right. too stressed. Right. Stop it. Be having like hernias and brain aneurysms at like, what are they, 31, 32 at this point? Like, like yeah, one like... isolated event? Okay. Bad luck. But like all of them at the same time? In 1996, they re-signed with Warner for a rumored $80 million. 
which was a figure that the band has denied, but would have made them the largest contract in history up to that point. Then who rumored it if the band denied it? I don't know. I feel like I would from somewhere. trust the band. Well, they probably are still, even at this point, wary of that whole sellout thing. So they might be like, no, we didn't make that much. Like, they might try and downplay. Maybe. I don't know. The next albums continued to be monster successes, and it seemed like they could do no wrong in the 90s. But in 1997, when they met to start working on demos for a new album, Bill Berry told them that he was quitting the band. To rest for his health? (laughs) Just quitting. Uh, The four of them were always a super tight unit. They made all of their decisions unanimously. They all shared all songwriting credits. So to many people, he was like many of the fans he was just a drummer and drummers are just easily replaceable but it was a big deal for the other members of the band like he was just they're a four piece they don't do anything without each other but bill told them that he would not quit the band if his quitting broke them up oh so the band agreed to continue on as a three piece and let him just kind of step away okay good yeah. Sounded really codependent there for a minute. I was <laughs> I mean, like, oh, no, be, no, honestly. no. Bill said, quote, I'm just not as enthusiastic as I have been in the past about doing this anymore. I have the best job in the world, but I'm kind of ready to sit back and reflect and maybe not be a pop star anymore. End quote. Just fair. Yeah. Been going at it. How do all of them hard. have actual heads on their shoulders? <laughs> they, well, they all like. Hit Bill's almost killed him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Michael had a really tough time with it and said, quote, for me, Mike, Peter, wait, quote, for me, Mike and Peter as REM, are we still REM? I guess a three-legged dog is still a dog. It just has to learn to run differently, end quote. Bill Berry retired to life on his farm in Farmington, Georgia, that he bought back in 1988 with his then wife. Farmington? Yep. (laughs) His farm in Farmington. Oh, my God. Sounds like a town in a cartoon. They divorced, him and his wife divorced in 1997, which is also right around the time he left the band. In 2019, he said that he'd never go on vacation because he spent enough time in cars and airplanes. He said, quote, I kind of like sitting still for a while. Still haven't grown tired of that, end quote. Oh. He still insists that he doesn't like playing drums. He says it's not a musical instrument. What? But, but he- <laughs> Like, it's not musical. It's not melodic. It's not... He doesn't like it? <laughs> he is doesn't this, like it, apparently. This is what he said. It. <laughs> but he still plays acoustic guitar almost every day. Oh, my gosh. Bill did return to music in 2022 when he formed a super group of Athens-based musicians, and they released their first album in January of 2023. That's fun. What's yeah. the album? What's the know. band? No idea. Now we got to pause while What's you What's his name? Up. Bill Berry. All right, Barry formed a new supergroup called The Bad Ends with Athens and Atlanta-based musicians Mike Manitone of 5-8 on guitar and vocals, Dave Demizi on bass and vocals, Jeff Melkonian on keyboards and vocals, Christian Lopez on guitars and mandolin, Barry on drums... <laughs> My guy. <laughs> the debut album, The Power and the Glory, on January 20th, 2023. 
There you go. So understandably, recording of the next album after Bill left was pretty tough, especially because they moved on from their longtime producer, that guy from like way back in 1988 or whatever. Again, the band came close to splitting up, but called an emergency meeting and patched things up. They replaced Bill with a drum machine, and the album was a more experimental sound. A drum machine? Yeah. Like just automated drums, basically. Like Like tracks on a production thing or like a synthesizer i don't know okay so like computer like a computer computer drum yeah okay (laughs) not like a robot makes it sound like a robot (laughs) no (laughs) there's not a like mannequin back there playing drums um their next album after that one released in 2001 was a return to their more like classic rock style In the early 2000s, they continued releasing albums and touring successfully, and it was also when questions about Michael's sexuality started to creep up with more intensity. And he stated several times that he is attracted to men and women and doesn't classify himself as anything. Leave leave this person (laughs) alone. Oh, my Lord. People just refusing to accept that, like, bisexuality exists. (laughs) He, I think his quote was something like, I'm an equal opportunity lech or something like that. Like he just, <laughs> I love uh, it. Uh, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. In 2010, they released an album that fulfilled their Warner contract. So they started working on a new album that they planned to self-release. On September 21st, 2011, the band announced that it was splitting up. They had talked about it for a few years after declining success and shakeup at their label kind of influenced the issue they ended their run as rem with a compilation album that spanned the entire time of the band as of now they have no plans for for a reunion michael said in 2021 we decided when we split up that would just be really tacky and probably money grabbing which might be the impetus for a lot of bands to get back together end quote they seem like a very regimented group of people yeah they seem like surprisingly from the scene they came out of they seem like they had a good head on their shoulders and did things pretty well they're like we're ending on like a compilation album Mm -hmm. it's there's (laughs) all there's everything that there is and we're done like it sounds extremely thought through since the breakup mike mills has played with various other musicians but hasn't really done much of note peter buck has relocated to the pacific northwest and sometimes lives in portland seattle or mexico He's been married three One times. One of those things is not like the other. <laughs> One of those things is not in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe it gets too cold and he just got to go down to Mexico for a bit. He's been married three times and has a few children. Michael Stripe has pursued a variety of different art projects, working in TV and film, photography, and collaborating on other music. And that's the story of R.E.M. Have any thoughts? Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Not a lot of drama. Not a lot of... Not a lot of much going on with them. Michael Stripe is cute. Yeah, there was a lot of... I mean, Michael Stripe, because of the time period it was, faced a lot of like critique and pushback because of his sexuality. But, I mean, I wouldn't really call that drama. I would just call that people being mean to him. So, so next episode, in two or three months from now, we're going to talk about pop music. We're getting into kind of the new romantics. Talk a little bit about Culture Club. And then we talk about Madonna. And that's a fun story. Madonna. 
And I think we're going to do a bonus episode on Prince. And that's all I've got right now. Look at this man's yeah. Instagram. Yeah. I think he's just got way more into art. He always did art like the whole time. But now he's just kind of, he has the freedom to focus on it. So this he's just going to focus man. on it. All right. Anything else you want to say about REM? Automatic for the People is a great album. People should listen to it. I don't have strong feelings about their other stuff anyway. No thoughts. No thoughts at MD looking at Michael Stripes and Scream. Okay. <laughs> Check us out on YouTube. If not, see you next episode. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.